Welcome to the Ace Records podcast with me, Pete Perfides. And if today's episode isn't on brand, then I don't know what is. My guest today once said of his storied career, all those crazy old guys running record stores, I could be one of them, but luckily I got to be in music. And that's why we love him, because something of that comes through in everything he does. Indeed, it was his enthusiasm for records as mediated through his wonderful writing that apparently prompted Patti Smith to seek him out, sensing perhaps that if this guy could get so excited about the doo-wop records of his recent youth, then (laughs) (laughs) that would be a pretty good starting point for what subsequently became five decades and counting of making music together. She wasn't the only person at that time that spotted our guest's evangelical zeal for the life-changing qualities that seven circular inches of black plastic could action both for the artists whose name featured on the attached label and for the unformed minds hoping to be moved, educated, radicalized, or all of those things at once by the sounds captured therein. Uh, Jack Holzman at Electra Records asked him to gather a whole bunch of underground examples of that phenomenon for the seminal Nuggets double album released by that label in 1972. And then playing with the Patti Smith group right from their inception, it's an alchemy that he helped repeatedly create both in the studio and on stages around the world. And my God, what a writer he is. We're going to talk about his new book, Lightning Striking, and the eponymous Ace double CD that comes with it. Because if you knew nothing about what had happened in music over the past 100 years, both of these things will be a wonderful place to start. And so we extend the warmest of welcomes to Mr. Lenny Kay. Hi, Lenny. Hello, Peter. How are you doing over there? I'm good. I haven't been called Peter for a while, but I think I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's a, it's an uh, you write uh, amazingly well. You write in a way that you write in a way that seems to correspond to the way that the music you write about makes you feel when you press play. Is that what you try and set out to do? Well, I try to write musically. I mean, I am a musician, so I'm very attuned to the um, rhythm and the melody of a sentence. And uh, of course, as a musician, there's a certain narrative arc in the music that you play. So uh, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of in- interrelated. But, uh, you know, I love music and uh, I, I would hope that I play my music in the same spirit that I write about music. But not a, a lot of um, people who started off writing about music and then tried to make it. Um more often than not, I would say it doesn't, re- doesn't often go that well. And why, why do you think that happens? Well, I believe writers sometimes can be very self-conscious. They, they're more conceptual, perhaps. I don't know. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I know that actually I, I began as a musician and a writer virtually at the same time. So I had no sense of separation between the two mediums. Um, you know, I began playing guitar uh, when I got out of high school, and uh, it was about the time I started writing. Uh, a year or two later, I discovered Crawdaddy magazine, yeah. and it showed a way to write about music in the same spirit as the musicians who made it. And uh, so, you know, what can I say? Uh, they, they've kind of uh, been a parallel life with me. Uh, Patty met me as a writer. Uh, more than a musician and uh, together we've been able to make a music that has a certain sense of uh, literary uh, illusion and um, 
you know, which in a way kind of makes me uh, unique, <laughs> if I can only <laughs> say that. You were, uh, at the time you were sort of, you were a, a music writer, a music journalist. There were a lot of, um, there was a lot of star cachet attached to being a music writer. And a lot of writers were, um, were happy to either be, myth- be mythologized or mythologize themselves often through writers through being pretty cruel about the musicians I wrote about. Oh, I mean, you're speaking about Lester Bangs or John Mendelssohn. <laughs> certainly, certainly those two spring to mind and, uh, you know, and over in the UK, if you, you know, um, uh, but you, that was something you avoided, wasn't it? Well, I mean, I can't say I was totally uh, guiltless in, in, uh, in kind of uh, carrying a writerly image. Uh, I, I, I always bent the knee to the music, as I think I do in the book as well. Uh, I, I mostly, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm there to illuminate the music. I'm not there to use the music to make me feel grander uh, or uh, impose my opinions on, on other people. I uh, think of myself as a writer more like the uh, French New Wave of uh, film critics, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Jean, um, uh, Francois Truffaut, uh, that, that they were able to kind of examine their, their, their medium and then figure out a way to utilize it in their art. And, yeah. uh, you know, to me, that's uh, a really important facet of my musical education. Um, enlightening, enlightening Striking, it, I guess it, it's your most sort of ambitious book yet in terms of the, in terms of the scope of the music. Uh, it's sort of, and I guess you've made it a, a more approachable job for yourself by highlighting these sort of like, well, as you call them, lightning striking moments over the course of popular music and kind of, is that, what would you say, maybe use them as sort of entry points in which to sort of talk about their importance and how they spidered out? into influencing other things? Um, well, my, my modus operandi, I kind of, <clears throat> from my, my viewpoint now, uh, when rock and roll is somewhat, uh, you know, uh, I don't exactly, you know, I, I don't want to say it's, uh, it has a lifeline, but I mean, it's been developed to the point where it's been understood as a genre. And so what I did from the, from the viewpoint of someone who's lived a lifetime in the music is, is just kind of gave it an overview and saw, well, this something happened here and then something happened here. And it was a good narrative way to tell the evolutionary history of the music, which has given me inspiration all these many years. Um, You know, I, I, I never really wanted to write a memoir. Uh, I'm not, I'm sure there's not that much interest in uh, what I had for breakfast on some morning in 1977. But I also participated as a fan, as a, a musician, as a, a record collector. Over the years, uh, I, was, I was kind of an, an eyewitness to, an ear witness to, to many of these scenes as they affected me and as they would affect the music in general. And I thought that was a good way to tell a story and make myself a minor character because in the end, all music is personal, how you listen to it, how you receive it, 
how you send it out into the world. It, it does sort of turn into a memoir. A little, maybe that wasn't your intention, but certainly when, because you happen to be at one of the lightning striking moments that you uh, write about, which is obviously very convenient for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Uh, <laughs> but you do, but suddenly it gets, and in a way, I really love that transition from sort of having that slight detachment and writing about sort of, you know, say, say for instance, sort of New Orleans decades previously. And then, yeah, and then we're in Liverpool, for instance. And then, and suddenly, what do you know? It's kind of suddenly you're in the picture. And actually, I, I felt that as a reader, that was really exciting because, um, you know, it, it kind of um, it, it, it compounded the extraordinary nature of being in the right place at the right time, as indeed you were. Well, I mean, it's interesting to have experienced CBGB and see how a, a scene in mid-1970s New York City developed out of kind of uh, an, an underground gathering of, of people. Uh, I, I believe I quote uh, Brian Eno's uh, concept of senius, which is kind of not the top-down version of genius, which is how we usually regard these moments in time, you know, Elvis, mm. uh, you know, the Beatles, um, you know, Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Jefferson Airplane. But actually, he talks about the ecology of, of a scene of, of, it's not just the bands on stage, it's the people off stage, it's, this, it's the social moment uh, what it's being called for. It's for me, uh, CBGB was very instructive because to be honest, it was more about standing outside CBGBs while the Ramones had a fight inside and yakking with your friends and, you know, picking up that girl down the bar and, and, and just being there, uh, encouraging and uh, kind of creating this locus of energy. And I have to say that uh, understanding kind of how it formed out of nowhere, you could see how these moments in time began, you know, Seattle, mm. Los Angeles in the hair metal years, um, <clears throat> London, of course, in the, the punk rock thing, you know, these are very small conglomerations of creativity and to watch them grow and then to experience it. I mean, I always remember that moment in time. I'm, you know, I, I was so influenced by the San Francisco scene I, uh, I lived a continent away and I heard about these bands. I heard that they were happening, but of course, without the, uh, the Webonet, I, I had no idea what they sounded like. I just knew there was a, a lot of creative force field around it. And I had to go there to see it. And I, and I just love the fact that, you know, here we have the Fillmore and the Avalon and, you know, these seven or eight bands kind of, defining a music and moving it forward. And I remember that moment standing outside CBGB, which was, you know, kind of a, a, a down market bar and skid row. And, you know, there's five or six or eight bands. there, all kind of uh, trading members and learning how to play. And uh, I suddenly thought, hmm. And also I can feel it going out into the world, the English press picking up on it, finding the excitement. Um, and, and I started to think, wow, this is a little bit like what San Francisco must have been like when all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it happens. And that's exciting. 
Well, yeah, you, you mentioned that in your book. You said that, that you know, but that that was your primer in a way. That was almost your your dry run. You recognised it happening there, and you sort of saw the kind of elements of something that was greater than the sum of its parts kind of developing in in New York. I think what, what you explain really well is, you know, the, the sort of serendipity of it, not just one, the concurrent serendipities in a way, which go mm. to form one big serendipity. So, you know, you, you're really good at, you know, what's the little things that struck me when you're talking about television and, um, and about the fact that I, you know, forgive me if I, if I don't, if this isn't completely accurate, but, um, <laughs> but, um, the idea that the, the the sort of the, the Tom Verlaine, the members of television, sort of knew what it had to be, but weren't quite sort of proficient enough as musicians to sort of honor the sort of cerebral idea in a way of what television was in the first place. So that took a while to happen, and obviously, you know, Patty and yourself that that you know that took a while to gestate. So these things are all happening in parallel. And then they, they sort of meet it. There's a sweet spot where they meet, isn't there? Well, it takes a while. And, and that's why I wonder whether this concept of time and place creating a movement can happen in an era where, you know, people make a piece of music and all of a sudden, you know, it's out on the internet. Um, I, I, I think a lot of these scenes happen because they were out of the way, even if they took place in a, major music capital like New York City or London, uh, you know, was kind of under the radar of, of, of what was happening, uh, you know, and when it got to cities like Seattle, which, you know, even though it's a big city, it was kind of off the mainstream of the music business. You had time to kind of figure out how to put these disparate streams of of influence and, and inspiration together. Um, I, I believe one of the, you know, if CBGB had been, you know, found out immediately, A, you would have seen all these bands kind of too premature to present themselves to the world. I mean, with Patty, um, starting from when we played as, you know, aside from that first rogue uh, poetry reading in 1971, when we started playing regularly in 1973, we really had no idea of what we were going to be doing. We didn't even suspect it was going to be a rock and roll band. It took us a while to put all the pieces of the puzzle together so that by you know, nearly two years later, uh, we you know, had J.D. Dougherty as our final percussive piece and then we had the shape of a rock and roll band but we didn't sound like any rock and roll band that we'd ever heard before <laughs> and i think this time to develop this sense of patience that you're not going to try to do something that's already made or you know you've predictable that's that that's an important thing the predictability usually comes later when people start attaching a label or a, or a genre name or a specific performance style. I mean, I like the fact that early grunge in Seattle was five, six bands that really sounded very different from each other. Soundgarden and uh, what would become Pearl Jam and, of course, Nirvana. Uh, you know, 
uh, Alice in Chains, they, they were very different from each other. And then when it became grunge and, uh, uh, you know, and got the cliche and the stereotype, well, that's when it's time for the next scene to kick in. History um, has a way of conferring destiny upon things that really didn't have any, you wouldn't, really didn't have any sort of, you wouldn't really think might have destiny attached to them. And I think, you know, in the book, you, I think you refer to Nirvana as the, the runt of the litter. Oh, within, yeah. that, within that scene. Do you elaborate a little bit on that, if you don't mind? Well, you know, uh, the big gun, actually, the revel. I mean, I knew a lot about all these scenes going in, you know, but of course, the learning curve, as you get deeper and deeper and deeper and, and, and see what the major characters are and how they interacted, uh, you know, I, I never really gave Soundgarden a lot of, a, a lot of, uh, credibility i knew black hole sun and you know but to listen to them they are avant-garde they are so out there and and you in a way uh nirvana is is you know really figuring out how to do you know they have this kind of uh, unformed force field but kurt cobain is really understanding who he can be and by the time they actually make their record they they've done it and um I, I just like to watch that that sense of growing awareness of of what you can do as a musical combination. Um, you know, I, I you know my my favorites. You know, in in the Seattle. I mean, I love the Melvins. I love Mud Honey. Uh, it's such an interesting bunch of groups, and again, you know, very different. And when the phrase grunge got attached to it, it was too easily filed hmm. I'm, I'm 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 a i i resist definition i i remember uh in the 60s i got this record by a group called uh mayo and the red crayola they were on the same label oh, as the 13th floor elevators mayo it's a pretty chaotic record <laughs> i have to say hmm. you know a lot of freeform stuff happening uh not a lot of hit singles but <laughs> um to be honest there was a there's a little aphorism on the back it says definitions define limit and that's especially with patty that's what we've always believed in that we want to have the freedom to have a, a field of noise like radio ethiopia and then have a beautiful hard on sleeve uh, soft song like grateful or southern cross mm -hmm. um i i think once you get a definition then the fun of discovery is over. I know in my original Nuggets album, celebrating incredibly 50 years of having beers bought for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and it's going to be celebrated uh, with a, a five LP uh, box set uh, by Rhino in uh, at the end of the year. I mean, wow, amazing. But, but, but if you actually listen to my first volume, which is now known as a touchstone of garage rock. There's a lot of stuff on it that's hardly garage. You know, Sagittarius is uh, yeah. orchestral and- Yeah, Baroque. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think, and now when people come up to me at record fairs, as they often do and say, man, this is a great garage rock record. And I listen to it and I say, yeah, it's a great garage rock record because I know what it's going to have, you know, fuzzstone guitar, Farfisa organ, Yowling lead singer. Mm. But on the other hand, is it a great record? 
beyond genre. And that to me is one of the reasons why Nuggets has lived on because in a sense, they're all great records beyond being garage records. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm always, you know, interested in rising above the generic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it's that sort of yeah, as you say, it's just that sort of that moment where it's sort of uh, it's not defined. And um, and you know what, are you, when you talk about the you know the, the uh, making records with with Patty, you know, it's that sort of. Um, it's interesting to see the outsider's perspective just fleetingly coming in. So like, you know, John Cale, you know, trying to sort of get a handle on what it is that you do so he can kind of further define his role in it. And yet at the same time, it's sort of changing all the time. You know, it was John that gave you the title, inadvertently gave you the the title Radio Ethiopia, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're riding up to Woodstock in my uh, 64 Red Chevy blaring reggae you know and and john says oh this sounds like radio ethiopia we thought well good good <laughs> and uh uh you know and of course reggae music the one i mean if i had an infinite amount of time and pages i would have really liked to have done uh kingston because i love I, I really love, you know, reggae music and uh, have a pretty good stash of it. And that's an interesting tale in itself. But of course, it's a whole book. So uh, it is a whole book. And also, but it's also Kingston is a classic example of uh, really the thesis of lightning striking, which is yeah. uh, that, you know, and you, this this fascination you have with the regional that, you know, this kind of almost this this kind of creative version of nuclear fission can happen. Oh yeah, in these localized areas, and it sort of defies uh, description. I mean, obviously, that happens with all these locations all the way through the book. But in Kingston, you know, what the, is that like? Three streets in Kingston, I think, are responsible <laughs> for um, that. Like literally thousands of amazing pieces of music, um, which sort of blows my mind. Really, uh, didn't you say that you'd want? You'd have liked to have done a reggae nuggets. Yes, yes, I have the list. I have the records. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, again, you know, I, what I would do in the seventies is I go out to Brooklyn to the uh, Caribbean communities and go into record stores, and they, I would just ask them to play, you know, whatever singles they had there, and some of them were, you know, generic. Oh yeah, I, you know, this one sounds like all the, you know, seventeen others. And then you'd listen to one and uh, it would be just a great song. I did that recently. I went to uh, a record auction. I think actually uh, I, it was mentioned in the same magazine, in the same uncut magazine that you have your uh, <coughs> Paul Weller story. And oh, wow. um, I, I went to, a, a you know, like a kind of, a, you know, auction of stuff in my local uh, Pennsylvania area. And there was four crates of obscure techno 12 inches from the uh, turn of the century, 2000s. Wow. None of which I heard completely hilarious names. Uh, a lot of ones about uh, the chronic and um, gay sex. And, you know, so I just like bought all of them for, I don't know, $40 for the four. Wow. And I've been going through them over the past year. You know? And some of them are like, yeah, this is, just your generic thing. And some of them are, man, listen to that hook and listen to that craziness happening. So out of those four crates, I've distilled maybe 30, 40 
discs that are my techno nuggets. <laughs> and someday I'll go DJ them some there and really confuse people about who I am. Why, why, do, why do you think that unlike most people in their mid 70s, you're still sort of, <laughs> you know, quite sort of uh, can't really let go of that thrill of discovering things in genres that are really kind of pretty far removed from genres that you grew up listening to? Well, I, I, I like all musics. I mean, just give me the key to a music and 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 I'll turn it and see what happened. Uh, I I I for years, you know, oh Charlie Parker is like a genius, a legend, but I, I didn't quite know why, you know. And then one day I'm uh, I'm listening to a local jazz radio station, and the DJ is talking about a pianist named Dodo Marmorosa who was on many of Charlie's uh, early dial recordings out in California. And he, how he went crazy and, um, you know, my kind of guy. And then uh, once pushed a piano out a window to see what it sounded like when it hit the ground. And I said, oh, who is this guy? So I, I you know, find a couple records. And uh, I listen to how he's playing these little piano hooks. And man, all of a sudden, I got what bebop was. You know, it was really catchy. And then I could feel the excitement of of these musicians who suddenly suddenly had a new way of doing it and you know that's another great scene uh, the uh, west 52nd street uh, jazz scene in the late 40s again I, I don't know that much about jazz and mm. i wouldn't go there but it always attracted me that there was this real nexus of 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 creative energy on this street with like five Jazz, six jazz clubs that you would walk by and hear yeah. Oscar Pettiford and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and, you know, all the other ones who we don't, you know, aren't those household names. And in some ways, those are the ones that appeal to me the most because they're they're the people there, you know. Uh, it's finding your end. You're right. It's finding your kind of entry piece of music, the piece of which will unlock the door to uh, everything else. And, you know, and yeah, as a kid, you know, I used to buy records that even if I didn't understand them, I sort of maybe I'd read something about them that I sort of knew that one day, you know, maybe you'd need you need it's like it's like stepping stones and you don't have mm -hmm. the records that are like the stepping stones that will get you to the record that that you don't understand but one day when you when you've laid down all the other sonic stepping stones then you'll sort of truly understand that record which i think is one of the things that makes you just collect records all of your life i guess <laughs> unfortunately so <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, on the other hand, music is endlessly fascinating. I have to say, I like to hold the tactile record in my hand. I like to go search it out when I'm on tour. Mm. I usually take the day off to get away from the band and kind of roam whatever record stores are in town and just kind of wander. And you know, I don't really need anything now. So it's kind of serendipity what I find. But I just find it endlessly fascinating and and illuminating the many ways people make sound and create emotion out of it. And uh, I, I just feel, you know, it's, I mean, I, I could do it. I, I have too many records, of course, and too many interests uh, to, to be contained, but uh, I'm just 
I'm just really happy that I can be engaged in this and find it endlessly fascinating because, you know, there's always another great record out there. Yeah, that's true. Um, Going back to uh, when you mentioned reggae earlier on, it reminded me that um, I think you mentioned this in the book that you went to uh one of your early visits to london you went to a reggae gig on the same night that you went to see the Pistols. <laughs> that's right right tell me about that chrissy hind uh i i, I was obsessed with uh, ross michael and the sons of negus album and uh i went with chrissy hind as i said in the book to see chrissy hind's name and ross michael in the same sentence it fills Isn't me with joy true? <laughs> and then we went down. It was our first trip to uh, with with Patty to play London. We played two nights at the Roundhouse. This was probably uh, the uh, the night after. And I went there with her. Uh, I, I remember getting clonked by uh, a really small uh, mini, you know, Austin mini when I was walking across the street and not looking the right way. Luckily, it didn't. Uh, you know, it was just a glancing <laughs> blow and went to this concert, which was great. And then uh, we went down to the 100 Club to see the Sex Pistols and walked in on maybe the last two songs. And uh, I thought, yeah, it's a pretty good group. And I, I went back, you know, as, as I would, you know, visiting, you know, rock guy to say thank you to the to the band and, you know, tell them they were great and keep up the good fight or whatever. And they were kind of, you know, and then J.D. told me, he said, Oh, you missed it. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, this, you know, the lead singer, Johnny, said, did you go down to the roundhouse to see the hippies? Horses, horses, horseshit. (laughs) And I I really had a laugh because, yeah, I mean, you know, we were hippies and we were punks and we were, you know, Rastafarians or whatever. I believe we contain multitudes. I've never been insular with my musical taste. In fact, I don't like, it's like that definition thing. I like when musics blur their borders, when, you know, they miscegenate, they're mongrels, when they kind of blend things together in a way that's unaccepted, uh, that, that's, that's unexpected. Uh, you know, I, I thought when English, the English take on punk, which was very Ramones oriented, uh, was kind of one dimensional. And, uh, you know, even though tons of great records came out of it, um, to be honest, I knew what they were going to sound like. And I like things that I don't know what's going to sound like that I put on and I think, wow, this is this is unclassifiable. I'm glad that you were uh, only passingly. You didn't really dwell on it very much, but you were passingly defensive of New Wave, which certainly I remember when I was growing up. With you know, my my older brother was a punk, and um, a lot of his friends were punks. And new wave was almost like you know, the, if you if you if you couldn't handle the hard stuff, then right. new new wave was the stuff that you you kind of liked. I'm 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 generalizing a little bit, but um, but I just thought it was fantastic. And you describe it really well. You describe you know that there it wasn't like it you know punk was. It, it, it what what punk bequeathed in terms of the sound of new new wave was necessary and helpful everything mm-hmm. suddenly was a bit sharper and more angular and um and it kind of foregrounded the pop sensibility that a lot of these sort of new writers had um 
So that was good. Uh, the uh, and the going back to the pistols, mm-hmm. I thought uh, you mentioned passingly that um, was it Sid Vicious's brother? No, Sid Vicious attacked Patty's brother. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> In fact, if you uh, open up the gatefold of the Wave album, you can see a picture of Todd after uh, after he had his stitches. Uh, we were up in Woodstock uh, recording Wave, and he went to um, a club called Hurrah's, which actually was one of the first, quote, rock discos. <laughs> I guess they played a lot of uh, dancing with myself by Generation X. But, uh, uh, yeah, he, he I think Todd said something to, uh, uh, excuse me, Sid said something to Todd's girlfriend at the time, Tara. And, uh, you know, Todd, you know, said, hey, man, don't don't mess around. And uh, he broke a bottle and cut him. And you can, in fact, in our version of uh, So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, which, of course, is so nicely on Ace's uh, lightning striking soundtrack. uh, You know, there's that those lines about, you know, you call me broken glass (laughs) right before this is the era where everybody creates. And uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, he 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 uh, he he was marred by Sid, and of course, Sid's dis- self-destruction and path downward uh, really kind of represents the punk dream at its worst. Uh, to me, punk was always about personal empowerment, about about taking responsibility for your art, making it your own, and and. You know, Sid, Sid, the ultimate punk caricature, took it, took it down with him. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned um, uh, John Lydon's uh, Johnny Rotten as he was, and his famous quote. But in the important context of the realization that when he said, "Ever had the feeling you've been cheated?" he was talking yeah. about himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, in relation to the, the what I guess what Malcolm McLaren had sold him. And that was the moment he kind of ruefully awoke, woke up to it, I guess. He, he just he just gave up. I mean, it's interesting to watch that concert. It is on uh, the tube of you because he just feels the falsity. And, you know, they were complicit. Again, it's the same set list they've been playing for two years. Mm. Uh, you know, they'd run aground. The Sex Pistols album, uh, Bollocks, is a perfect album, but it gave them no room to grow. And as a record producer, my one of my duties, I always felt, because I never really wanted to produce more than one album with any artist. I feel if I really did a good job, they've gotten all my moves and they need to grow. But I always wanted to do an album where they, if if you wanted to move forward, there was the grounds for it. I have to say with Patty, all of our records, especially in the 70s, are very different from each other. They have different moods. They have different uh, motivations. They have different rassons d'être. You know, I mean, just like the the, uh, quartet of the Velvets records, the Velvet Underground, you know, that's a perfect arc. And then it's time for whatever comes next. With Patty, it was leaving music for a while to kind of recharge yeah. her sense of herself. And, uh, you know, but but I think you always have to 
point the way into your future and yeah like the sex pistols no future <laughs> well yeah and in a way i know what you mean because it, that record sounds like a destination and i think in a way that you know the thing to avoid really is making an album that sounds like a, an arrival or a destination you know when when the preferable thing is to make an album that's kind of almost like a bridge to the next record um but it also made the Sex Pistols story perfect because I yeah. think that's what Mal Malcolm was not a musician. He didn't want to manage a rock band. Um, you know, he 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 wanted he wanted a tail and to blow it up. And of course, you know, Sid gave him the perfect uh, character to undermine this whole thing. It, it's very difficult sometimes to deal with real emotion. Hmm in music. Uh, you know, I, I believe in Malcolm's mind, it was more of an artistic, self-conscious framing of music, uh, one step removed, even though luckily for all of us, the Sex Pistols music is incredibly visceral. You put on any of those songs from Bollocks, especially um, Anarchy in the UK, which I listened to the other day because I spun it on my uh, Sirius Satellite Underground Garage show. Yeah, incredible record, incredibly well produced. It, it actually hides the details of its production, that, that long trail of feedback that comes somewhere, you know, after the first, uh, you know, it, there's so much tension in it. And Steve Jones, <laughs> gotta say, is a genius. Uh, mm, you know mm. maybe a one note genius but hey man that's all we need <laughs> yeah ab absolutely absolutely it's you know and it's, you come back to it a lot even as far as early as when you're sort of talking about uh rock and roll and you know elvis's early recordings which again you know is a whole sort of uh, almost like an uh you know an, another book unto itself really um when you talk about um presence really and sort of you know, it's not as easy, it's not as simple as just capturing your live sound. You know, you, you, recording in the studio often needs to be a, almost a, an illusion or a platonic idea of yeah. your live sound, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially these days where you have an unlimited amount of time to experiment, uh, edit, um, you know, it's come a long way from capturing that one live take but even those live takes, you know, it's where the microphones are placed, the sound of F Sam Phillips' studio. That's yeah. really in a certain sense. I mean, listening to That's All Right Mama and realizing that's three instruments and Elvis, that's it. And it sounds full. Yeah. Every frequency is, is addressed. Um, there's a kind of genius to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and technology, of course, does a lot to drive the sound of what we're hearing. I mean, we have three minute pop songs because that's all they could fit on 78s. Um, you know, uh, now it's really interesting to see what's happening to classic song form, you know, verse, chorus, bridge, you know, whatever. It's kind of vanishing uh, with the manipulations and the way you can stretch things and layer things and, and you know, it's it's musical progress. And even though, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I can look back over a lifetime of listening to music and see how it, it changes. I'm mostly interested in seeing what happens because you turn on 
pop radio today, whatever pop radio is, because it's so splintered, sure. it's not only it's it's just a sound that that you know uh, is 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 in the process of growing, and where it goes to will will define the twenty first century. I mean, if you look back a hundred years to nineteen twenty two. You know, we're still coming out of the uh, Al Jolson. Uh, you know, yeah. Mamie Smith has just done Crazy Blues. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's the, the flat record is finally <laughs> assuming dominance. Uh, it hasn't even gone electric. Uh, the 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 movies are still silent. Radio is is a crystal set trying to pull in some weird station, and you have to listen on headphones. Uh, the 21st century is going to be miraculous in terms of communication, both good and bad. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'll be uh, I'll be watching and, and listening and hopefully, uh, you know, finding that great nugget if you dug it. Do you, do you um, <laughs> that way? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, Damon Albarn got into a little bit of controversy when he. Um, he created, I think he mistakenly, uh, I think he kind of maybe got Taylor Swift mixed up with someone else, but he used her as an example of that kind of songwriting by committee, that kind of, the kind of modern pop songwriting method. Um, I can only assume that he, he, ha he, he confused her with someone else or he has a different notion of how she writes to how she really does. Nevertheless, that songwriting, that modern way of writing songs where often you get, you know, up to sort of 10 people on the writing credits. How do, do, do you have any thoughts about that? Do you think, does that sort of uh, either way? Not so different than a band. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really people in a room working on a song, you know, it's, it's going to be a collaborative effort. I only listen to the song. I think Damon was wrong about Taylor Swift. She writes her own songs, and I've been a fan of hers um, since uh, "Teardrops on My Guitar." Uh, you know, mm. uh, it's and I, you know, all, all power to her. I mean, yeah, little, little. You know, she did go pop, whatever that means. And even though country music is is about as pop as can be these days. Um, I think she's very smart. Uh, and a lot of times when I'm, you know, listening to random radio in the car and I hear a cool modern song, I'll like do the Shazam thing and mm. I'll be astonished that it's a Taylor Swift song. You know, she's, she's really good. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that there's a certain element of generis, genericity <coughs> to, uh, <coughs> to modern pop music, <coughs> excuse me. But on the other hand, uh, you know, it's, there's some remarkable, remarkable records out That's there. Right. I just, uh, I, I, my, my new favorite is, it's called A-B-C-D-E-F-U. <laughs> and it's like, you know, some woman saying, you know, fuck your dog and fuck your mother and, you know, fuck all, you know, these, and, you know, oh no, it's, it's that like, fuck it, all everybody and, your, yeah, you know, yeah. your stupid car. Yeah. But not your dog. <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're a lifelong lover of pop, and um, you know, I, you know pop, pop music is is you know popular. I mean, I have to say that you know, all those Nuggets bands, they're great pop records, great they're hooks, and pop, uh, yeah. 
And, you know, I mean, uh, l- let us not uh, denigrate that. Bob Stanley uh, really understands yeah. uh, pop. Uh, he he just did this book about uh, pre-1950s pop, which is kind of fascinating because, of, of course, um, I, I spent my uh, some obsessions uh, writing about Russ Colombo and the crooners of the 1930s, yeah. a really incredible side trip that I took in my musical consciousness that really nobody understood <laughs> but uh you know i mean it's all that popular is about com- communicating and sometimes pop can be really simplistic you know it's like a chant that you know whoa that you know you know they're going to sing along with at the arena mm. and uh but it's it's not easy doing pop music i mean with patty you know we often try to have something that will be that kind of uh, mega thing but we're not that oriented to it. I mean, the real trick to me is, you know, you can do something avant uh, and appeal to 12 people, or you can do something really pop and, you know, appeal to millions, but to combine the two, that's, that's the, that's the trick. And I believe with the artists I've worked with, with my life, you know, Patty, uh, Suzanne Vega, uh, Jim Carroll, I was able to work with idiosyncratic artists that actually found a following, you know, doesn't have to be, you know, an arena following. In fact, that's probably less interesting to me than, you know, a theater or, you know, you know, someplace where you can communicate anyway, go. Yeah. No, I just wanted to ask you a bit about your sort of, you know, your, your life as a producer, really. Um, I would imagine that for someone like Suzanne Vega, you know, the 80s was a difficult decade to be someone like Suzanne Vega. And I would imagine that it would have been a great source of relief to her to find a producer. I mean, I, the, the reason I say this is I, you know, I remember <laughs> someone played me, uh, someone played me a demo of, um, of, a, of an early REM song where they were initially paired with uh, Stephen Haig. Who, uh, oh, I've I've heard of this story. Yes, yeah, and it's quite you know it's uh, you know Stephen Hague went on to produce lots of amazing records. I just don't think he was destined to really make a great one with REM. You know, it's quite a sort of compared to what they went on to do, it's quite a shocking noise. And uh, but the eighties, you know, if you were someone with guitar based drums in the eighties, you were really at the mercy of. Um, especially if you didn't have much power, if you're on your debut album, then you better have a producer who's got your back, I would think. Well, that, that was my job as a producer to not, you know, I mostly worked with independent artists making the transition to the majors. So the trick is to to do the things that enhance both ends of the spectrum but to always understand that it's the artist and the song that's that's speaking to you um my my you know i mean i i believe a producer in a studio it's not like i'm bringing a sound to them i mean i'm not that kind of a producer i'm really their best friend you know in in the psychodrama that is making a record uh also in that moment in time in the mid eighties, when things were so gargantuan and drum sounds were recorded in like caves and, mm-hmm. you know, and it was like these larger than life personalities. Looking back, I believe the culture called for someone like Suzanne. 
Uh, you know, and, and, you know, they were trying to sell a folk music at a time when folk music was anathema. Um, and my thought was that, yeah, let's not just make a folk rock record, put some drums behind this. If we're going to have percussion, let's make a percussion and not boom, chick, boom, boom, chick. Yeah. So we can keep the focus on Suzanne and also give her room so that the second album, Solitude Standing, which had the classic hit Luca, you know, by the time she actually added drums, just like with Patty, that they were organic to what she wanted to do. And uh, that's a tricky thing. I have to say, uh, when I was a working producer, especially with the bands I did in the mid eighties in the UK, uh, Micro Disney, James mm. and uh, the Weather Prophets, uh, it, it was really interesting to walk that line between keeping what ended from their kind of alternative independent roots, but trying to open the world to them. Um, mm. And uh, I just love those. I love the groups, I, you know, because they were so idiosyncratic, the bands that came well, I to me. Well, like I, I want to ask you about those bands before I do, but if I'll forget to ask you this if I don't ask you now. because Okay. We'll while we're on Suzanne Vega, you mentioned drums, but of course, you know, there was one song on those Suzanne Vega albums that famously didn't have drums or anything on it. Tom's diner. <laughs> uh, what was, um, was that always going to be an acapella song? It was all, it was just Suzanne would sing it acapella. Funny story about that. Um, when we were recording the album, you know, we were doing all the regular songs and, you know, we said, well, let's do Tom's diner. So we recorded about eight or nine versions of Suzanne singing it. And, uh, you know, at the end of it, I circled in red the, uh, the version, I, you know, we liked best and that was it. And then we went out to mix in LA and it was, you know, very difficult mixing all these things. But finally we said, okay, let's, let's go, you know, let's get, uh, you know, a little reverb or something on Tom Steiner. And we pulled up the version uh, that, uh, I had circled and we said, yeah, that's great. And then I looked at the tape box and realized it was a wrong version. And then we listened to the version that I'd circled and it wasn't as good. I thought, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So that's the version that's on the record. And of course, when DNA uh, put some, uh, some beats underneath it, it made it a hit. It was, it was all over again. It, it, it's really, uh, it, it's a sweet tale. And of course, after that horrible universal fire, um, mm. all the other takes of Tom Steiner are now gone from oh, the original wow. master tapes. Oh, wow. You know, so it's kind of a drag. But anyway, it exists. And, uh, mm. and uh, Suzanne, I'm sure, probably still sings it just like she did with her charming uh, ingenue way. Mm. Yeah, and every time we're on our, uh, by ourselves in a diner, then uh, <laughs> we kind do, of imagine do, we're do, in that do, song. Do, 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 <laughs> especially, especially when I'm in New York, I get re either I'm in, I either imagine I'm in Seinfeld or I'm in Tom's Diner. You know, either way, I can't lose. Um, totally. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's get back. Those, uh, I'm glad you mentioned those records by uh, Micro Disney, James, The Weather Prophets. Um, I think those probably I would I would I was in my teens at that point that that would have been the first time I would have seen your name on a record, and uh, and so um, the knowing a lot more about you now, 
I'm thinking about the James album in particular, which is an amazing, you know, people, James went on, as I'm sure you know, to huge commercial success. Um, and their sound is maybe a little less eccentric than it was back then, but they were a band at the time who I think maybe it would have been hard to imagine them going on to be as big as, as they became. But that album Stutter that you worked on, it's got some incredible moments. And as a sort of, as a rock scholar like yourself, a song like Johnny, Johnny Yen, which, oh, yeah. uh, that's like the history of wanting to be a rock star in three minutes. <laughs> that was a really funny record. Because, you know, a lot of times groups are very defensive. I, I also say Patti Smith's uh, group, when we made Horses, was very defensive about utilizing the studio. You know, uh, James definitely wanted to, uh, to do everything live and choose the best cut, which I told them, well, you don't need me to do that. You know your music. Hmm. Uh, but anytime you move the reverb a little bit, uh, you know, is, it, is that good for our artistic, you know, whatever. It, it was a lot of discussions uh, and psychodramas as first records of, often are. You can actually, in this song, uh, Black Hole, which I think closes the album, you can hear me and Tim fighting in the mix over <laughs> <laughs> things go, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> but you know, great bands, uh, you know, Micro Disney, just beautiful, beautiful guys. Um, yeah. I just love that album. And of course, The Weather Prophets, uh, Pete Astor. Uh, I, I mean, all one's records are 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 your favorites. But to me, I, I just love that album. And Naked is the Day uh, is one of my masterworks as a producer. I just yeah. love, and I perform that song myself now. I almost do. You? Oh, wow. Wrote it. Yeah. Does Pete, I, I did. does Pete know that? Uh, yeah, I've, I've sent him, uh, you know, when I've done it live and stuff. Uh, it's it's a beautiful song and I'll be singing it on my birthday because uh, Naked is the Day You Were Born and I'm, my my delayed birthday show at the oh, Bowery really? uh, Ballroom uh, from December 27th has happened in a couple of weeks. So I'll be performing it then. Oh, keeping man, it, keeping it in the uh, What an accolade. The air. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a well, great Pete song. Pete would have been delighted to work with you because again, he he kind of he knows his sort of rock mythology. So he would have been a that would have been a huge kick to have even just sort of spent time with you in the um, uh, in the studio. We spent, we spent six weeks in the studio and, wow. and went through the dark and the light. And uh, mm. you know, I just I really love that record. I know that uh, there are those who say, well, you know, they were bitter as indie and it was too slick. But you know, you. You, you can't be trapped by preconception. You have to be bold and you have to, you know, make sure that you grow uh, oh. and, um, and um, you know, keep evolving, much like the music that I celebrate in Lightning Striking. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you, uh, I just wanted to ask you about, about a more recent production of yours, which, okay. again, you know, sort of like slipped under the radar here, but... Um, uh, a record you made with Waylon Jennings's wife, Jesse Cole oh. Psalms, which is a which is a beautiful record. I guess that um, that would have stemmed from your work with Waylon Jennings himself, right? Right on on his autobiography, I got to really know the family and uh, came down one morning uh, to see Jesse behind the piano when I was staying at the house, just with the Bible open, singing away, not really making songs even though they turned out to be, but just placing chords and singing the lines. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing uh, I'd ever seen. And 
kind of finally got her in the studio and, you know, no rehearsal, no nothing, opened the Bible, tried to find a psalm that was not really uh, about lopping the heads off the Philistines. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she would sing it once, sometimes twice, and that was it. And then I, over 10 years, I gingerly, gingerly <laughs> overdubbed on it because I wanted to make each track a little bit different. But just a beautiful work. Jesse is so spiritual without being kind of dogmatic or doctrinaire. And I feel like we really captured the light there. It was, it was a really important record. And, uh, you know, well, I, I'm, I'm so proud of it. And it's not on, on um, incompatible with the uh, work that you've done with Patty over the years as well. I mean, if I think about something like wave, which in itself, you know, contains themes to which Patty has returned as well. Um, I'm thinking of her, I guess it's not so recent anymore, but the incredible album that she appeared on, which was a soundtrack to a Wim Wenders film about um, about mm -hmm. the, cur the current Pope. And um, this kind of, this dimension has sort of always been there, sort of in parallel, really, um, I guess, in, in, in your work and obviously in Patty's work. Which well, is, you know, the music is is all about the spirit. I mean, no matter what mythology or language you speak to the spirit in, uh, you know, I mean, that's why sometimes the church gets in the way of the light. And mm. I'm all forgetting to the light. You know, I mean, whether it's uh, Rastafarianism or Judaism, where I'm born in, or, you know, the beauty of you know, Christ's message of love and kindness or Buddhism's sense of self-acceptance um, or Islam's, you know, beautiful calligraphy and, and, and way forward. I mean, I, I really enjoy mankind's gospel leanings. I mean, mm. you know, really, I, I, I love listening to gospel music. Church goer or synagogue or anything like that. I believe in in the spirit, uh, the blessings of this life, uh, the the imagination we've been gifted in some way, shape, or form that we're not given to understand. So yeah, I I believe in celebrating it. And when you have a piece of music that moves you emotionally um, through frequencies of of notes and 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 the abstract language that is music, I'm. I'm I'm happy to be a participant in it. I know that, like so many of us, um, you mentioned that you've been hugely enjoying uh, get back. And as a musician and someone who spent <laughs> a lot of time in studio, I, I, I'm referring, of course, to Peter Jackson's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. documentary for people who maybe just arrived from another planet. Um, and um, they're, um, of course, and I've seen this time and time again, musicians in particular just be in raptures that finally this is an authentic document of how creativity works with bands and how bands are in the studio has come along and of all the bands to sort of come to be beamed in from the past and show us how it really is it turns out to be the greatest band of all time it's a remarkable doc. I mean, I how many times was I watching it and then calling up Tony Shanahan our bass player and saying Tony there's us. Look, you're being <laughs> passive aggressive. I'm pouting because you're not listening to me. You know, I'm trying to be nice. 
I'm going to play it your way or you can play it your way. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's and of course, what it really cuts to out is those hours of waiting for stuff to happen. I mean, we are seeing the highlights of, 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 a, of a certain process that, you know, you're just sitting there. Sometimes you're, you're missing, you know, the jokes that you wind up doing, the, the tedium, the, uh, the sense of, of something, the joy of watching something come together. You know, I mean, I can remember a lot of, you know, moments in the studio where, oh man, this sounds horrible, horrible. And all of a sudden that magic moment where everybody locks in and that's it. And- uh, Can you, can I, you give yeah. me an example? Lenny. Well, I mean, uh, I, I can give you a, a strange example. Uh, we're on our covers record. We did uh, a version of uh, Jimmy's, uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, Are You Experienced? And we're doing it in Electric Lady. And so like, I'm, I'm looking over to where Jimmy would have been standing. <laughs> but we're, it's pretty much live. And yeah. when it comes down to the solo, I figure I'm going to stomp on my, uh, my wah-wah pedal and you know, really deliver the Jimmy. And I, I stomp on it and I pull out the plug. <laughs> so all of a sudden you start hearing, <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, everybody's playing. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm trying to put it back in and finally I do. And then I start playing. And you know, we came in the studio and listened to it. It's a great take. And I'm thinking, oh man, I know what's coming up. Ugh. But I just thought, yeah, that was Jimmy coming in there, pulling out my plug, putting it back in and making a sound that I never would have heard before. And so there it is uh, on the finished record. I think Birdland on uh, on uh, Horses is another example of yeah. the development. Uh, it was originally like a three minute song poem that was kind of laconic about mm. Peter Reich and uh, his father, uh, I mean, uh, Wilhelm, yeah, his father, Wilhelm Reich. And we wanted to record it live in the studio. And John Cale was in his Beach Boys period. So he was into layering and doing all that thing. And, you know, he kept saying, well, if you want to want to do it live, you better do it live. You know, so, you know, we do that, you know, and, and you can listen to the takes, you know, fourth take, fifth take. Around the sixth take, we, it's up to six minutes. And I've heard that take recently. And it's, it's pretty good. We could have stopped there. But no, John, you know, wanted more. So pretty soon we we get up to take nine or ten. And he's driven us so crazy that we just kind of burst through. And that's the unadulterated take on uh, on on nuggets. I mean, not on nuggets, on the horses. <laughs> uh, you know, just like all of a sudden this thing happens where we we enter the zone. Yeah. And, and uh you know, it, it's it's a remarkable thing when it happens, and that's um, and you get that, and you know, I guess the privilege for someone like me who has never been in a band, and certainly not been, you know, made music in a recording studio, is that you get to be kind of a participant in that for the first time, really, as mm -hmm. you know, on something like Get Back. And no, um, I mean, it's it's a it's really it it made me laugh once I realized what was happening because. You know, I, I we've all you know this one walks out. Okay, I'm 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 finished. You know, you, you know, I'm, you guys have driven me crazy, and uh, you know, it's it is a psychodrama. And being in a band, 
it's you have to make compromises. Otherwise, you have a, a leader and then who wants everything to sound the way they do. And they just tell you what to play. And, you yeah. know, I can go along with that. But in a real band, everybody has ideas. And that to me is the magic of a band, that it's not just one consciousness. It's like four or five or six consciousnesses blending so that it sounds like a unit. Uh, not that easy to achieve uh, egos and musical preferences and and all of the above get in the way that you said ever, you know bands are a beautiful thing have you ever been the one doing the walking out oh yeah i mean actually i you know in a, a lot of time i mean yeah i mean i i i've split you know uh just because yeah you know it's like okay you know you seem like kind of a mark he seemed like kind of a mild-mannered guy. I'd kind of... I oh, yeah, but I'm also like, I, I, I know what I like. And, uh, hmm. you know, sometimes if I'm not being listened to or I think I should be listened to or I'm mistakenly thinking I'm being listened to, then, you know, get on with it and show me what you want to do. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, if it works, great. And if not, you know, what can you do? It's It's just... The, the creation of music, it's as a writer, we also know when we've written a couple pages and we realize, oh, this is not going where it should. And so you, you know, you crumple up the paper and you start over or something goes in a different direction and you just go with it. Um, that that to me is 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 the fun part of creativity. Do you carry this? Not, I mean, it's an intensely, you know, well-researched book. Or maybe it isn't. Maybe you carry this stuff in your head. Oh, but, um... <laughs> I forgot most of it now that it's gone. No, I carry a lot of it in my head. This keeps my brainwaves cooking. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm all about, like, learning stuff. Yeah. Someone Has someone made a, 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 a Spotify playlist of every song? Yeah. Uh, I don't I think I, I we made a, a Spotify playlist in England, uh, like 10 songs from each chapter. I've, I've, uh, I have started wants to be, you know, I mean, but I mean, uh, I don't really know. Uh, you know, I mean, my playlist might be different stuff. You know, there's a lot of songs I didn't even get to put in there because, you know, maybe they weren't trenchant to the actual chapter. Um, as, an, as an American, I really like the fact that you really, uh, you really kind of fought the corner for "Move It" by Cliff Richard, which <laughs> I wasn't necessarily expecting, but I, very happy about. Well, I, I wasn't able to get uh, what's the song in "Violent Playground" that that weird nineteen fifty seven "Get Tough" or something like that. You know, some of that was lost. I wasn't able to get the great Rory Storm track that I wanted, right. uh, okay. which was uh, "America," which kind of cracks me up. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I love pre-Beatles England. Uh, I have uh, many, uh, what a pop star, whatever the uh, you know pre-Beatles uh, uh, magazines that I pick up when I'm over there because I'm fascinated by the Marty Wilds and the Billy Furies and mm. the Adam Face and yeah. uh, you know all, all of those kind of teen pop idols refracting America. Have you ever and done I'm the? Have you ever done the sightseeing thing? Have you ever gone down to where the two eyes was, where the, um, you know, funny you should ask that 
uh, last time I was in England, uh, I, I was, uh, I think that was November. I came over, uh, wow. Lee Brackstone of White Rabbit had me do a couple of events, one at Rough Trade East and uh, one up in Balf. And uh, I, I wrote about the two eyes and I thought, where is it? So I went on the Webonet and found the address and uh, I was staying in a hotel not far from it. So uh, I took a walk and you know saw that it was a fish and chips place. And then I had my picture taken down, you know, down the yeah. stairs where the two eyes uh, neon sign is. Yeah. And I felt like, okay, now when I hear about the two eyes coffee bar, I can visualize where it is in this world. I'm, I'm all about going to holy sites. Well, the they New might... Orleans chapter was yeah. really holy. The laundromat. Tell us about the laundromat for people who haven't read the book yet. Oh, my God. Cosmo Matassa's studio was in the back of his family's appliance store. Uh, on the, right on the corner of uh, the French Quarter. And... Uh, you know, it's a very small room, I think 16 by 19. And it's where they have the dryers now. And you walk it back in there and uh, they have pictures on the wall of Fats Domino and Lloyd Price and Little Richard and uh, Sam Phillips with Cosmo Matassa, the great engineer. And you're in one of the holy spots of rock and roll. In fact, the case could be made that it is rather than um, Sun Studios, it's kind of the alternative birthplace of rock and roll. Mm. And, uh, you know, just standing there with the dryers swirling, as I said in the book, you know, like a big, big 10-inch shellac record. Um, you know, it, it was just amazing to imagine, you know, all this creativity that came out of this, this weird back room in New Orleans. It's interesting what ends up on the kind of rock tourist trail and what doesn't, isn't it? Because, you know, you... <laughs> um, I had a similar moment when I went to Liverpool and uh, and I went um, slightly out of the way. So I saw, you know, the cavern isn't where the cavern originally right. was. They, As you know, they've recreated it. So I took a ride out of town slightly and went to the Casbah Club. Now, oh. I, don't, I don't know if you ever had occasion to do that. but No, no, good idea, though. It's Next not... And it's not um, so the cas for people who don't know the Casbah Club is sort of where um, the kind of the sort of basement of um, of uh, Pete Best's house, the large house that he that his mother bought after she won an amazing bet on a horse where she was able to buy this large house. But the Casbah, the the venue where the, where the the Beatles played in the cab, the room there where uh, is. Um, is essentially it's the same room. It has it's the, it had the same damp, the same painted walls with the kind of with the primitive kind of paintings on the walls that the, the Beatles helped out with. It's kind of all there, and no one really goes. It's kind of it's not really um, it hasn't really got that kind of flashy. It's not been commodified in that way. I think sometimes they do tours, but sometimes they don't. And you're in this just quiet suburb with no real footfall, no, not too many people coming and going, and yet it's there and it exists, and it's a thing that it was, unlike the unlike the um, cavern, right? And that's kind of amazing, you know. So you're that's what it reminded me of. So when you're telling me about when you were writing rather about J and M Recording Studio, uh, you know, in New Orleans, and it's a laundromat, that's that's it's just so arbitrary, isn't it? What kind of 
what gets the tourist treatment and you know the heritage treatment and what doesn't but um yeah next time well, you're in- i mean to be honest every time i play the Fillmore in uh in san francisco i'm just ecstatic to be standing where john cipollina stood I mean, mm-hmm. my favorite guitar player it's 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 great to kind of see these places. When I was in New Orleans, I went to where the Dew Drop Inn was. You know, it's an abandoned property now. But uh, you know, when I was doing the Whalen book, I went to Buddy Holly's birthplace, his where he lived in Lubbock, and uh, the house, of course, has been turned down. But I took a couple stones from the uh, you know the 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 lot and uh, brought one back to my friend Tom Clark, who's a huge Buddy Holly fan, and you know. We love these artifacts, and sometimes the the less grand they are, the more they resonate mm. with, uh, with, with within us. I mean, I'll walk by CBG. I will never go into the store that's there now. I believe it's a John Varvatos store, and I have nothing against John Varvatos. I actually have a pair of his sneakers. Right. But I won't go in there because I don't want to disturb the memory of the hundreds of times I walked in there, and there's Hilly sitting at the little table on the right and then you walk down the narrow bar to where the stage was uh i really i i honor these places where time and space intersected and you know dare i say lightning struck um it's it's really uh you know it's it's kind of fun when we were in liverpool with the band we were taken up to uh john lennon's aunt's house which is right around the corner from strawberry fields and uh, looked in his bedroom and all that you know stuff but what tony uh who's a large beatles fan and i did was we went into the vestibule because we knew that john and paul used this little entryway vestibule to sing in because it had a cute little echo and we sang blue moon together just like john and paul might have uh, in 1958 (laughs) got to be done absolutely got to be done um lenny um i've kept you a bit longer than i expected to but it's just been so fast having a great conversation i have to say it's you've really done your homework pete and uh, of course you know know, i don't think it's ever ever possible to properly do your homework where you're concerned but um but you know i certainly tried but um um anyway just to reiterate it's it's a fantastic book and i'm glad you mentioned bob stanley's book as well because i think you know what you do is a really fantastic kind of uh complement or counterpart you know you both you're you're both kind of kindred spirits and people who who like uh bob stuff will definitely like yours and people who like your stuff will definitely like bob stuff as well and um and the accompanying compilation is a great is a great thing to listen to whilst you're reading the book and you know i'm just looking at the track i'm just reminding myself um of some of the, so even El- i don't licensing wise i've got to say i don't know how elvis might how uh, ace managed to get um that's all right on there but um hats off and so it takes us right through to the early days of rock and roll and uh right through to uh hey mud honey and and of course uh the patty smith and the stooges it's a really it's a brilliant kind of evocation of of everything you so enthusiastically write about in the book um so lenny thank you so much for keeping thank me you so much pete i really have enjoyed our conversation uh 
I, I love the fact that my book is actually done because a couple years ago I looked at the mountain I had yet ahead of me and the mountain I already climbed and I thought, am I going to ever hold this in my hand and and yak to somebody in England about it? And now it's happening. So okay, it's really well, great. I hope to get to be one of the many people who uh, buy you a drink next time you're in town. Take care. Absolutely. Okay, you too. Have See a good one. Take care. Bye-bye.